That's our, our main focus this season is to look at these four titles that are given to the Lord and, and recognize that these are uh, titles given to him that represent his, his kingdom, the things that he, the way that he will be viewed in his kingdom. And as I mentioned to you last week, it's important to note that the kingdom of the Lord is already here in the form of being in our hearts in the Holy Spirit, and it will physically be here in the future in what we know as the millennial kingdom, where Christ will reign on the earth for 1,000 years. And so we have the kingdom of God in our hearts today. So these characteristics, these uh, names in which Christ is called ought to be uh, reflected in how we function. And one day they'll be, they'll be the principal rule of the earth. All of the earth will be ruled by these characteristics and everybody will be expected to view Christ in these ways. And so just a little background of Isaiah 9, it is a time of anguish for uh, this God-fearing remnant of Judah. Uh, Judah is facing an attack from the two northern kingdoms above them, Syria and Israel, and they're, they're uh, concerned, they're worried, they're fearful, like many of us would be who are facing difficulty or facing challenges. We are often likely to move into the realm of worry, fear, or concern. For this remnant of people, it's always a remnant, remember that. Uh, God, is not, uh, God is not expecting the whole world at this point in time to kneel down before him. There will come a season or a time where mankind will, will kneel down before God. But what he is expecting is there to be a remnant who kneels down to him now. In this day, there was a remnant of Judah, not the whole, but a remnant of Judah that were willing to kneel down and to trust him in the midst of a great difficulty. Instead of trusting man, we looked at it two weeks ago, Instead of following the king, Ahaz, who wanted to figure out man's philosophy to fix things, there was a remnant who said, I'm not going to figure it out man's way. I'm going to trust God to figure it out. This is something that we all have to consider during this Christmas season. It's great to sing praises to the Lord in these songs that we sing before the service. It's great to worship him in music. It's far more valuable to worship him in obedience. It's far more significant that we bow our knees before him during the holiday season and we recognize who he really is. Jesus, this is God with us. God became a man and walked amongst us for 33 and a half years. The promise that's given here is a promise that God would be amongst men. Isaiah 7, it literally says that his name will be called Emmanuel. And then we're told in Matthew that that means God with us. There's a significance to this moment. And it's not a significance that doesn't demand us to kneel down before him and to trust him in every aspect of our lives. So here's this remnant of Judah, and they're worried, they're afraid, they're they're in a moment of difficulty, and there's a promise given to them. And this promise is that Jesus, that, that a king will come, and he will lead the nation or lead the world in a glorious, prosperous, and righteous kingdom. This king is Jesus. He is characterized in our text 
by being called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We know this Jesus because we've read about this Jesus. We've studied this Jesus in the Bible. He comes the first time. He came 2,000 years ago into this world, and he came as a lamb. You may ask, why did Jesus come as a lamb when he promised to come as a king? Well, Jesus came as a lamb the first time, of first uh, uh, part of his coming or his return. He came as a lamb so that he might establish a way for there to be a kingdom. In other words, the world is full of sinners. And if Jesus was to come to the earth and establish a righteous kingdom without first coming and establish right, establishing a, a, a means for us to be righteous, he would be in the kingdom all by himself. So Jesus came 2,000 years ago to establish a way through which we could be made righteous. And then we could become a part of his kingdom. He came, he died on the cross for our sins, and he offers forgiveness to anyone who will repent. He offers forgiveness to anyone who will confess their sinfulness. And then he resurrected on the third day. He was victorious over our sins. He not only came to die for our sins and offer forgiveness, he came to win over our sins. And when he rose the third day, he won. He won the greatest victory that had ever been won over mankind's sins. And therefore, he's able to gift us righteousness. You see, he's not only offering forgiveness, but he is gifting righteousness. He's taking a people who are sinful and unrighteous. He's paying the full penalty for their sins. And then he is providing for them his righteousness as a gift. You're familiar with Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That gift is the gift of righteousness, that he made a way through his death and resurrection for mankind not only to be forgiven of their sins, but also to be made righteous. You see, the forgiveness of our sins leaves us still dealing with them the victory over our sins, and the righteousness that Christ imparts or gifts to us is where they are completely, the, the, there is a complete satisfaction by God. This gifting of, remember this as well, the forgiveness of our sins is only offered to those who repent. I believe that the greatest challenge to, to Christianity today is Satan's ploy that mankind is okay. Mankind is fine. Mankind is good. And he has convinced us of this so that we don't confess that we are sinners. And if you don't confess that you are a sinner, you do not receive forgiveness. It only comes to those who repent of their sins. And then the gifting of righteousness only comes to those who believe. It only comes to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. It only comes to those who kneel before the Lord and his path and his direction and not before man. It only comes to them. Scripture promises us that this Jesus will come again one day. He will return to establish an earthly kingdom. In this earthly kingdom, he will reign for a thousand years. And then following that thousand years, he will reign forever on the earth in the new Jerusalem. 
And we will all, like Philippians tells us, we will all bow our knee before him. The issue is this, folks. If you're here this morning, you have been given the opportunity to bow your knee before Jesus now and be saved or bow your knee before Jesus in eternity and be condemned. And listen, it's not just the, the Bible. Jesus says about the Jews in Matthew, you worship me with your mouths, but your heart is far from me. It's not, it's not a verbal bowing your knee before the Lord. It is a real bowing your knee before the Lord. It is, it is a giving your life to the Lord. It is a trusting him with whatever he chooses. He's all wise, right? Everybody believe in here that Jesus is all wise and he's all powerful? There's nothing that he can't do, and he'll never do anything that's not wise for us. We believe that. How hard is it then to bow our knee before him? Because I'm convinced that a lot of us believe this here, but we don't believe it here. And if it's not here, one, one scholar wrote, many people are 18 inches. There, there's a, the, the, the comment was there's 18 inches between heaven and hell. Between it being head knowledge that we all know and it being heart knowledge that we all believe. There's no belief in the Bible that doesn't transform a person. There's no belief. There's a lot of knowledge in the Bible that doesn't transform a person, but there's no belief in the Bible that doesn't transform a person. It changes us utterly and completely. The question that's posed by our first... um, our first title given to Jesus, Wonderful Counselor, is answered by the second title given, The Mighty God. The question is simply this. The question is this, and we talked about Wonderful Counselor last week. The question is this. Is the king who has been promised to us, who always counsels us to the supernatural, Is the king who has been promised to us and always counsels us to the supernatural? In other words, every counsel that Jesus Christ gives an individual should leave them wondering how it happened. There shouldn't be any answer that you should be able to give in a natural sense of this is how this happened. Every counsel that God gives should leave an individual pondering in their heart how did this happen? The question you have to ask yourself is this. Is the king who always counsels us in ways that make us ponder, is he capable of fulfilling his counsel? Is Jesus capable of fulfilling his counsel to you that will always drive you to pondering how it happened? I believe that we as Americans are super fearful of putting our faith in someone or something that will make us ponder how it happened. I think we want to be able to control it. We want to be able to answer the question. We want to be able to say this is how it happened. The Lord is not pressing us in that way. The Lord is pressing us beyond that. It seems like an honest question. If someone asks you to trust them for the impossible, evidence of their capability is helpful. The Lord is asking us to believe the impossible. He's asking us to trust the invisible. He's asking to put our faith in things that we can't see. 
We can't understand. Many of us are very willing to do this when it comes to going to heaven when we die, right? The reason we're willing to do this when it comes to going to heaven when we die and not doing it for or doing it for very few other things in life is because we know we can't control that. The issue is simply this. The Bible teaches us if you're not willing to put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the daily needs of this life, it is likely true that you are not truly placing your faith in Jesus Christ for your eternal needs. If you're not able to bow your knee to him in earthly things, it is likely that you're not bowing your knee to him truly for eternal things. Hebrews 11 gives us the greatest picture, I believe, of what it means to put full faith in Jesus. You're familiar with the passage because we've studied it in the last year or so. People in Hebrews 11, they, gave, they put themselves out there, didn't they? Listen, see, Hebrews 11 is full of people. You don't need to look at it now, but look at it later. It's full of people who trusted in Jesus Christ fully, wholeheartedly. Some of them lived and some of them died. But all of them won. They were all winners in the end, weren't they? Because the promises of God that were applied to those who died were just as accurate as the promises of God that was applied to those who lived. Because the promises that God gives us aren't, do not stop when we die. They continue forever. God is not limited by time that he has to fulfill his promises to us before we die. Right? He can fulfill his promises to us forever. He wants us to trust that. The, the whole health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is all of the things that God promises you in the Bible you're going to have in this life. That's a lie. And it causes people to pursue things that are not biblical. I believe that I will be fully healthy one day, 100% healthy, never having to worry about sickness again. I believe that I'll be 100% wealthy one day. I believe that I'll be 100% prosperous one day. But I don't believe I'm promised that in this life. I believe that I'm promised to trust God enough to put myself in his hands in this life, knowing that these promises are meant to be fulfilled in the next life. And I believe that one of the things that proves that we have faith for the next life is that we have faith in this life. Jesus says, or, or Jesus doesn't say it, James says it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. It's serious. Man, this Christmas season, the, 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 thing that, the thing that burns my heart and burns my heart is that we don't really see this Jesus for who he is. We, we've, we've made something out of him that isn't accurate to the glory that he deserves. We've made something out of this season that makes him into something less than the fact that that was God in that, in that manger. And when those wise men came and they knelt down before him, that's exactly what every, every human being should do. In worship and in awe of this wonderful miracle, of God becoming 
a man. Some lived and some died, but all won. Jesus is not ashamed. I want you to notice this. Jesus is not ashamed of his counsel. Okay? Jesus is not ashamed of his counsel, even though it cost many people their lives. We don't understand that. We don't comprehend that. Jesus is not ashamed of his counsel, even though it cost people their lives. Because the fulfillment is eternal. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 11, verse 16. He says, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. In other words, God is not ashamed to be knelt down to, even though it caused people great suffering in Hebrews chapter number 11. It caused people to have their babies ripped from their womb. It caused people to, have, be, to be sawn in pieces. What he's saying is, is this, if, if the promises of God don't come true, then God should be very ashamed of himself. Because people are being, the disciples were, 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 were boiled in oil and, and they were stoned and they were, they were beaten and abused and they, they went through great horrible things. And the Hebrews 11, the, the additional disciples went through horrible things. If God's promises aren't true, then God should be ashamed of himself. But God is not ashamed of himself. Why? Because he has made promises and he knows that those promises are going to be true. The moment we wake up on the other side of this life, folks, God is going to say, here it all is. All of my promises to you were true. We believe that? The Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 11, this is a quote from Isaiah. He says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. In our text here, we're looking at these four titles given. I'm not going to read the seven verses because we've read them the last few Sundays. I'm just going to read our text, and we're going to look at the fact that God is a mighty God. Jesus is a mighty God. He says in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Our focus this morning is on the fact that Jesus Christ is a mighty God. And it's directly related to the fact that Jesus Christ is a counselor that's going to press us into the supernatural and then he's going to fulfill it. Everything that God, I think it's 2 Thessalonians, the Bible says, or 1 Thessalonians, one of the two, it says that what God calls us to do, he accomplishes through us. He's the one that's doing the work through us. It's, it's in his strength and it's in his power and it's, it's, it's in his might that fulfills the things that God calls us to accomplish. It is things that he does in us and through us. And so he's counseling us in such a way to press us into his second character, which is the fact that he is a mighty God. He's a powerful God. And so I want to unfold that for you in five thoughts. If you have a sheet, a note that you can, um, I passed out sheets or someone passed out sheets this morning, um, these will be on there and you can follow along with us, with me on those sheets. 
First of all, Jesus' authority to do the supernatural. Does Jesus have the authority to do the supernatural? The things that he's counseling us to do, does he have the authority to do them? Does he have the authority to accomplish them? When, he, when he's called mighty God here, the title God that, he, that is used to refer to Jesus in this text, it originates from the Greek noun, ale, and this term just means mighty. It means a, a high, it's, it's mighty in rank, uh, mighty in, in position, uh, a, a mighty uh, uh, politician or a, a mighty leader. It's directly related to the rank of the individual that is mighty. As a matter of fact, the the Greek phrase here is El Gabor, and it means mighty, mighty, the mighty, mighty one. It means that God is mighty in mightiness. God is mighty strong. So it's almost like putting two terms together that mean a very, very similar thing, but to emphasize the fact that this is the mighty one. Jesus is the mighty one. He is the mighty, mighty one. You know, we used to watch the cartoon Mighty Mouse, right? Jesus is not Mighty Mouse, but he's the Mighty, Mighty God. His strength and his authority and his ability to do the things that he's called us to do is is significant to us recognizing and placing our faith in him. If we don't have faith in his ability or his authority to do the things that he, he claims that he can do, then we will often lack in trust and obedience. In the Old Testament, we see this over and over again, the term almighty used. We see it in the New Testament as well. But almighty, someone that is all-powerful, that has all might, the one to whom rank and power belong. This term describes for us Jesus' authority. Deuteronomy 10 and verse number 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belongs heaven and the earth of heaven and the heaven of heavens, and earth with all that is within it. In Psalm 24, verse 1, the Bible says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So what is the source of Jesus' authority? This is your first thought under the first point. The source of Jesus' authority to do the the supernatural. The source of his authority to press us into trusting him to do things that we may not be able to, or we should not be able to figure out on our own. What is the source of his authority? Well, first of all, by by this Hebrew term, we see three things. Number one, that he is God. This term describes God all throughout the Old Testament. It also describes great leaders or significant people, but primarily it refers to God. Jesus Christ has the authority and the the right to accomplish the supernatural because he is God. Not only is he God, but he is the creator. He, he, He has the ability, he created gravity, and he has the ability to defy it. He created all of nature. He created all of nature's processes. He created it all, and he has the ability to defy those things. He shows us that all throughout Scripture. He shows us that he's more powerful than nature. Do you remember when the disciples were out in the boat and the storm was a-rocking because there was a big, a big storm going on, and Jesus says to, to the waters, peace be still? 
And the disciples say, what kind of man is this? They figured it out, or they were figuring it out. He's a creator. Everything that is created is subject to him. Everything that is in this life is subject to Jesus Christ's authority. He has the right to do as he pleases in every situation. Job is another wonderful example of this. Here's a man who went through great heartache and great pain. He lost so much of his world that was around him, his wealth, his family. He lost his health. He lost all of these things. But when God decided that it was over, God just said, it's over. And guess what? It was over. God was done teaching Job the lesson that God was teaching him. And Job had to realize that God is all wise and God is all powerful. Do you know what, this, you know what the end of Job's story is? The end of Job's story is simply Job putting his hand over his mouth and saying, I'm not going to question God anymore. Isn't that interesting? Could that be the thing that he's working with us on? The source of his authority is that he is God, he is creator, and he is owner. All all things belong to God. All things belong to God. And he does in those things as he pleases. Genesis 1 and verse 1, we hear in the beginning, God, which is the Hebrew word Elohim. There's that word El at the beginning. It's the prefix of of the term. God. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. It's his. Psalm 24 and verse 2, or we read 24.1, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Genesis 14 and 19, he says, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, who is the possessor of heaven and earth. It means that he owns it all. It's all his. He does with it as he pleases. Do we believe that? That God does as he pleases in every situation and in every circumstance. And do we trust him to be wise, to be all wise in doing what he chooses to do? Isaiah 42 and verse 5 says, Thus says God, The Lord, who created the heavens and stretched out them, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. What does the Lord want from us on Christmas? He wants us to bow our knee to that. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to bow our knee to the fact that he is all wise and he is all powerful. And to live in peace in our hearts and our minds with all of the turmoil around us, not trying to figure out how to fix it, but kneeling, knowing that he has the ability to fix it at the thought of his mind. And therefore, he has a reason for not fixing it. True? 
He wants us to bow because he is God. We're coming to the, we're coming to the, we're coming to the Christmas season where you have a baby in a manger. And listen to me, the wisest of the wise men came and they bore gifts and they knelt down before him because he is the king. Even as a baby. We can't lose sight of the fact that that's God in the manger. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And God's people said, he does. He is not, his arm is not shortened. His hand is not unable to do what he wants to do. And that means everything in this life has a purpose. If God could reach out and stop it, and he chooses not to, it has a purpose. The source of God's, of Jesus' authority to do the supernatural. Secondly, underneath the first point, the scope of Jesus' authority to do the supernatural. It's interesting because this, Greek, this Hebrew word, ale, for God, is often a prefix in the Old Testament. It's often accompanied by and associated with an adjective which describes the very specifics of his ability or of his authority. In other words, in what areas are, is Jesus Christ authoritative? In what areas does Jesus Christ have authority? I'm just going to give you a few because I, there are a number of them in the, in the Old Testament. There is El Roy, which means God sees everything. There is El Olam, which means God is everlasting. He's completely in control of time. There is El Shaddai, which means God is our provider. There is Elohim, which means God is the creator. And we, can, we could go on and on. I have 25 or so written here. El Yeshua, which means God is the one who redeems. And over and over again in the Old Testament, and it literally covers the, the whole gamut of your life. If you could imagine one area of your life, you can probably find the Hebrew word El as a prefix to whatever it is that you think God is not in control of. Why? Because he is in control of it. He is in control of it. He is the mighty God. He is the ever. He wants us to know that. He wants us to, to call him the mighty God. He wants us to claim that he is the mighty God. That's the essence of Christmas. Isaiah 9 and verse 6 and a child is born and a son will be given and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called. This is Christmas. What do we call him? He is the mighty God. He is the mighty God. He is God. These are just a few of the areas, and again, and we could go on and on, but El Selah, which means God that brings stability. El Gaal, which means God who is joyful or God who brings joy. And over and over again in the Old Testament, God is the creator and owner of all things. And there is nothing that's not under his authority and under his control. 
Every aspect of life is connected to Jesus' authority to act and accomplish whatever he sees as right. And there's nothing that the Lord doesn't see and know and have authority over. Nothing. I quoted to you earlier about the disciples in the storm and the Lord calms the storm and the disciples' response is a response of wonder, right? There it is. That's that wonderful counselor. What did he do? He counseled them right into us. He literally tells them to go into the storm. He's like, get in the boat and go to the other side. He knew the storm was going to be there. He's telling them to go into the storm. Why? He's telling them to go into a situation where he was going to be made a wonder to them. We need to see the wonderful God again. A God who works the miraculous. And the only way to do it is to be willing to go into the storm. We have to be willing to go into the fiery furnace. We have to be willing to go into the lion's den. We have to be willing to face the greatest difficulties in this life by standing firm for what is right and true and and Christ-honoring and know that that's going to be the moment that we're going to walk away in awe of God. Why do we not have an awe of God in our culture today? Because we've taken it all on our own hands. And the Lord lets us do it. Number two, Jesus' ability to do the supernatural. This comes with the second term in the Hebrew is gabor, which means it's an adjective. It describes God's, God's ability. It describes his strength and power. He's the mighty, mighty warrior. This term is referenced to being a victor or a conqueror or somebody who has overcome. And Jesus is the one who wins. He is the winner of all things. Nothing ever defeats the Lord. And when you see this word, Gabor, it's literally, it's literally describing the fact that every situation Jesus wins in. We don't believe that, though, do we? We don't believe that. Because when something happens that's really, really bad, we think he lost. Did he lose? Does he ever lose? Is he what he says he is? I think so. Psalm 24, verse 7 through 10, look up. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, the king of glory, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? It is the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. Isaiah 42, 13, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stores up his, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. Jeremiah 20 verse 11 says, but the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. You get some time, read through the book of Revelation, you'll see how victorious Jesus is. He's not a defeated. He's not a defeated friend. He's a victorious friend. Number three, 
Jesus' accomplishments as evidence of his ability. We come into the New Testament, to the Gospels, and what we see in the Gospels is we see a display. We see a, 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 a really, it's a, it's a, a, a pre-description. It, it's, a, it's a showing of Jesus Christ's power that mankind might trust him for the fulfillment which will be in the millennial kingdom. It's kind of like he's showing them prior to the full fulfillment, here is what I'm powerful enough to do. And when you read through the Gospels, you'll see that his power is unlimited. There is no difficulty that you'll ever face in your life that Jesus hasn't already overcome. Do you believe that? There's no difficulty in your life that Jesus hasn't already overcome. This is why he says, come unto me all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because he's the one that's won. He healed the sick in the Bible. He healed those who were diseased. He fed the multitude. He fed 5,000 people, or you could say maybe, maybe double that when it comes to the non-men, which is the number that he mentions, 5,000 men. So you're talking fifteen to 20,000 people. Five loaves and two fish. Can he feed you? He made water come out of a rock in the Old Testament. Can he make water? Can he make water for you? Is there ever anything that God can't do for us? He calms the storms. He feeds the multitude. He forgives the sinners. He makes the blind see. He makes the deaf hear. He makes the dead live. He makes the lame walk. He turns water into wine. He casts out demons. He makes the dumb speak. He restores the withered hand. He causes the fig tree to wither. He causes empty nets to be full of fish. He puts a coin in the fish's mouth so that Peter can pay his taxes. He walks on the water. He raises himself from the dead, according to John 10 and verse 18. Is there anything too hard for our God? I don't think so. I mean, I might be stretching a little bit, but it seems like he's covered all categories. Maybe I missed one or two, but listen, they're all there. What he's saying is, is that there's nothing that's going to happen in your life that I haven't faced and won over. You know, when you're looking to go to somebody for help in this life, you want to pick the person that's actually maybe helped somebody else to have the same victory, right? Well, Jesus is your man. He's your man. Hebrews 2.18. For because because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Luke 1.37 says, nothing will be impossible with God. In Matthew 19.26, Jesus looks at them and says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus' accomplishments as evidence of his abilities. Number four, Jesus' attestation to being the fulfillment. Jesus' attestation to being the fulfillment. Remember this. Jesus not only is the provider, he's the provider, right? Right? I want you to think about this, and I want you to get this. 
Jesus is not only the provider, he is the provision. He is the provision. That means for your hunger needs, Jesus. For your thirsty needs, Jesus. For your health needs, Jesus. For your financial needs, Jesus. He's not saying that he's going to solve your needs. He's saying that he is the solution to your needs. What we want is we want our needs to be solved. Jesus says, I might leave you sick still, but I will satisfy you in your sickness. I might leave you poor still, but I will satisfy you in your poorness. What Jesus is pointing us to us all throughout Scripture is not that Jesus will do what we want him to do, but that Jesus is who we need him to be. Jesus doesn't just feed the hungry. He is the bread. Jesus doesn't just satisfy the thirsty. He is the water. Jesus doesn't just provide light. He is the light. Jesus doesn't just heal the sick. He is the healing. Jesus doesn't just deliver or bring salvation. He is the deliverance. Jesus doesn't just calm the storm. Jesus is the calm in the storm. Jesus doesn't just forgive sins. He is forgiveness. Jesus doesn't just make us alive. He is the resurrection. Jesus says this to Mary and Martha in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The issue is Jesus. All of these things that we go through in life are meant to point us to whom? They're meant to point us to Jesus, not so Jesus can take us out of the things that we're going through in life, but so that Jesus can satisfy us in the midst of the things that we're going through in life. In Christ, we have everything necessary for a satisfied life. Amen? If you have Jesus this morning, you have everything necessary for a satisfied life, even if your life stinks. I was going to use another term, but I thought that was even, that was more, <laughs> that was maybe less offensive. It wasn't going to be a cuss word, though. <laughs> Don't cuss. Jesus, if you have him, you have everything that you need for a happy life. Now, it's hard to understand, it's hard to believe, it's hard to accept, but it's true. John Piper says it this way. This is one of his most famous quotes. He says, God is most satisfied in us. God is most glorified by us when we are most satisfied in him. And then after he went through cancer and he went through several other difficulties, he changed his quote to saying this, God is most glorified by us when we are most satisfied him in him in times of difficulty. God taught him that it was actually a bigger picture than what he even saw. Psalm 18, verse 1 through 3 says this, I love you, O Lord. You are my strength. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my fortress and my deliverer. 
my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I will be saved from my enemies. Isaiah 12, 2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and he is my, strong, my song and he has become my Salvation. First Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him, you who are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The issue is this, folks. Jesus is all-satisfying. He is the mighty God. He is all-powerful and all-satisfying for us. 1 John 5 and verse 12 says, whoever has the Son or whoever has Jesus has life. But whoever does not have the Son shall not see life. Point number five is this, Jesus' appeal for mankind to believe. Jesus' appeal to us today is that we believe these things. It's simply that we accept them as being true. It's not going to mean that you're going to be able to figure it out, explain it, uh, uh, converse about it with people. You're not going to be able to do those things. These are supernatural things. The issue is, is, are you willing to kneel down before it? Are you willing to kneel down before something that you can't comprehend? Because it is the supernatural. You're not supposed to comprehend it. You're supposed to be in awe of it. God needs to make you in awe. And when you can explain him, you're not in awe any longer. Many today believe that they are God because they can explain what God is like. What we need to do, what God is calling us to this Christmas season is to accept Jesus for who he is. <clears throat> By faith, accept that Jesus is the mighty God. And these are your last three thoughts of your outline if you're taking notes. By faith, Accept that Jesus is the mighty God. <clears throat> By faith, repent of trusting anything but Jesus. And by faith, believe and expect the supernatural. Let me read a few verses to you, and then we'll close. John 20, 31 says this, But these are written, <clears throat> the things of the book of John are written, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing <clears throat> you might have life in his name. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Matthew 11.28-30, I quoted it to you earlier. <clears throat> come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Remember this. The work of Christ is always meant to draw you to him. It's never meant to push you to others. It's never meant to push you to other gods. It's always meant to press you in to him. Come unto me, all you who are labor, labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My argument this morning is simply this. Jesus is the mighty God. He has both the authority and the ability to accomplish 
everything and anything that he wishes to accomplish. He's all wise. He's all powerful. He gives us examples to prove himself, and he teaches us that he is the fulfillment, and he calls us to embrace him with all of our heart. Matthew 13 says, if anybody finds the treasure of great price or the pearl of great price or the treasure that's hidden in the field, both are examples of Jesus, he will then sell all that he has. He will turn his back on everything else so that he might have the treasure. When we see Jesus for who he is, everything else becomes insignificant. And he's proving it to us and proves it to us every day. He promises us if we believe, we will be saved, satisfied in him and hopeful for all eternity. And my question to you this morning in closing is, will you believe? Will you bow your knee before this mighty God and trust him in every circumstance, in every situation of your life? Will you give your life to him? You will not be ashamed if you do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your might and your strength. Thank you that we can trust that you're authoritative over every area of life and that you're powerful and you're victorious and you're the winner in every situation. And let us put ourselves by faith on your team. Let us give ourselves to you and trust you in every circumstance and every situation as evidence, Lord, that we're trusting you for eternal things. We love you. This season is a wonderful season that we get to celebrate you. But Lord, help us not to miss who you are. Help us not to help us to help us to stand in awe of you again and see you as the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. Help us to kneel before your holiness and your greatness. Because you, Lord, alone are worthy. In Jesus Christ's name.